reading of the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the conception and birth of our Savior. Lord's Day 14. There we confess as a church. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his, per- with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin, in which I was conceived and born. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're once again in the season of Advent, the season where we look forward to, to Christmas, the day on which we celebrate the birth of Christ. And at the heart of this celebration is indeed the, the birth of Christ. It's his coming in the flesh. We're acknowledging in that celebration that there was a need for God to take on human flesh. Whereas Paul puts it, to humble himself. It was necessary in order that we might be saved. And that's the real marvel and mystery of Christmas, that the Son of God, who had all the infinite glory and and power in the universe, would for a time clothe himself in robes of frail humanity. And it's through this taking on human flesh that we have the benefit of a mediator, a mediator who truly knows us. And one word, sorry, the miraculous and astounding birth of Jesus Christ was the astonishing incarnation of the Son of God taking on flesh. And today we'll consider the birth of Jesus under this theme Our Savior is born. And we'll consider two things. First, we'll see our need for this birth. And second, we'll see our benefit from his birth. First, then, our need for his birth. We read from the gospel according to Luke, and we read the the angel's announcement to Mary there. We could have also read from the Gospel of Matthew and his account of Christ's birth. And these two accounts, they tell us that Jesus' birth came about through the the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a work of, of the Spirit. This is what we have in Scripture. This is what we as a church confess. And this is also a teaching that has been challenged. It's been challenged for centuries. One of the reasons for this is that Matthew and Luke are actually the only places where the the virgin birth is explicitly mentioned in the New Testament. Paul and John and the other writers don't mention it. And so some scholars, even some some so-called Christian scholars, use this to suggest that Matthew and Luke aren't writing historical fact, but they're writing more of a myth. 
And you can find Christians who will say that this is a minor point. It's an area that we could disagree on. We don't really need to believe that Jesus is is the God-man. And perhaps you've come across arguments like that yourself. And often you find underlying this view, a, a view of humanity that, that raises man up so that we, don't, we aren't as, as sinful as we might seem. There's more good in us than we might believe. But scripture is very clear that we are completely reprehensible apart from the work of the Spirit within us. It's clear that we could never save ourselves by our own works and our own actions. It's clear that we need Jesus to save us. And those who deny this, they overlook several issues that are raised by Scripture. Because the incarnation and the virgin birth are actually traced throughout Scripture. We have Old Testament prophecies about this. And we have New Testament letters that reference this. For instance, it might be true that the Gospel of Mark doesn't mention the virgin birth of Jesus. It doesn't start with Jesus' birth on earth. But it's also true that the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't mention anything about the first 30 years of his earthly life. It jumps right into the public ministry of Christ. And if you look in, in Mark chapter 1, at his baptism, there, the, the God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And so the Father shows with these words at his baptism and also later on at his incarnation, our need for the beloved Son who participates in the baptism that Mark calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as for the Gospel of John, the beginning of John's Gospel, yes, it's, it's true, it doesn't start with the birth of Christ. John is more concerned about drawing a parallel because, between God's creation of the world at, at the beginning and his, his recreation through Christ entering the world. And yet John, he speaks quite clearly about Jesus taking on human flesh, the Son of God taking on human flesh when, he, when the author says that the Word of God was God and the Word of God became flesh. It's a description of the virgin birth itself. And again in John at the time of, of Christ's baptism, John the Baptist, he cries out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once again, the author shows the need for this birth. In the miraculous birth of, of Jesus, it's also mentioned by the Apostle Paul. Now, his, his primary concern in the letters that he wrote was to deal with the divisions and different misunderstandings that were taking place within the Christian churches. His purpose wasn't to to retell the life of, of Christ as the gospel writers did. And yet he does quite clearly speak of the Son of God taking on flesh. And he speaks of why that was necessary. We read one account from Philippians chapter 2. We could also have read 
from 1 Timothy 3, verse, verse 16, where Paul says that Jesus was manifested in the body or in the flesh. Or you could look at Romans chapter 5 and how Paul speaks of the first Adam having failed and, and the need for the better Adam, the better man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who Paul will also call our Lord. And so, basically, every New Testament writer acknowledges in, in one way or another a need for Jesus to be born. And also, if you were to look outside of Scripture, you'd find that the teaching of this virgin birth is foundational to the history of the church. We'll find this in the oldest creeds and confessions of the church, within the letters that 1st and 2nd and 3rd century Christian leaders wrote to various congregations. And the reason these teachings were, were included so often is because this teaching of Christ's birth is essential to us. It's essential to our salvation. One 20th century scholar wrote this, there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as an absolutely essential part of the Christian belief by the Christian church in all parts of the known world. And so what we confess in this Lord's Day, it's an essential event. It's an essential event in the history of salvation. We needed, we needed Jesus to be born as a baby. And we also need, as Christians, to hold on to this teaching in an age of skepticism and, and doubt. It's an essential teaching. When I was around 12 years old, I had a lot of, of, of stomach pain, or I thought it was stomach pain. And it turned out that my appendix had, had ruptured. So I was rushed to, to, to the hospital and I had surgery and I was told that, you know, the appendix, appendix it's not really necessary. We don't even know its, its true purpose. It's not essential. But what this Lord's Day teaches is no appendix to the gospel. It's not something that we can do without. The virgin birth and the power of the Spirit is what leads Jesus as a human to being free from original sin. Each of us is conceived and, and born in sin, and by our very nature, we are worthy of condemnation before God. We are unable to live on our own strength in, in a way that would, that would please and glorify God. But because Jesus was born without any trace of original sin. He was and, and is human in its purest sense. He is able to live as the second and the better Adam on our behalf. He's able to perfectly fulfill God's will and his law on our behalf. And at the same time, that he is pure and, and sinless man. Scripture also makes it clear that he is almighty and powerful God. Passages like Isaiah 9, 
mighty God. It makes it clear that we need a savior and a mediator who is divine, having the very nature of God so that he could bear the the wrath of God. As Isaiah goes on to say, on on him was laying our iniquities. And this was necessary because no mere creature would be able to withstand the the punishment for, for our sins for an individual's sins, yet alone for the sins of someone else. And the Savior, likewise, he had to be truly human so that the same nature that had offended God by sin would be punished for sin. And this gets down to the real mystery and wonder and miracle of Christmas. Because when we speak of the virgin birth of Christ, We aren't speaking about the birth of someone who was human but but just happened to have a human mother. Or sorry, a virgin mother. That surely it would have been unheard of at at the time that Jesus was born. But today, at least, it's it's not impossible. In modern times, you have IVF and surrogacy. And in creation, we see something called parthenogenesis where a a creature, usually plants, will reproduce on their own. The real miracle, the real wonder of Christmas is the reality of, of who was born. This was the Son of God. He had existed through all eternity as the Son of God. And now he also exists as the son born of Mary with no human father. And this is what we call the incarnation. Incarnation, it's a, it's a big word. And the children here, perhaps you've learned about different types of animals and what they'll eat. You have, you have herbivores and they eat plants. And you have omnivores that have more of a a mixed diet. And then you have carnivores who eat almost exclusively meat or or flesh. And it's that word flesh that's at the root of both incarnation and, and carnivore. And in the incarnation, the Son of God, he takes on flesh. He gained a human nature. And this is why in our Lord's Day we confess that the eternal Son of God, who is and who remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature. It's an echo of of what we read in the book of Philippians, when Paul says that Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking on human flesh. He took it upon himself. He didn't have to be forced into the world. He went willingly. And as the one who willingly took on the form of a servant, it was then ultimately the Son of God who fulfilled that that ancient prophecy that says, Here I am, Lord, and behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He perfectly submitted to the will of the Father because we needed someone to do that perfectly for us. And yet all the while, he did not lose his divine nature. 
those who, who saw Jesus as a newborn child, they saw him as a child. He was a, a baby like other babies. And yet God dwelt in Mary's son. And those who would come in, in contact with Jesus later on in his life, they would see him as, as a boy among boys, as a teen among teens, and as a man among men. And yet all the while, God was in that body. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And through his obedient life and his sacrificial death, he is truly just what we need. And he remains both God and man today, which is of great benefit for us, which is our second point. In the second question and answer of this Lord's Day, we confess that he is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Now, a a mediator, some of you probably know, is a person who stands between two disputing parties. And normally, a a mediator is is neutral, a neutral third party. Someone who might be genuinely concerned about the situation, but he's still, there's distance from the two sides. But Jesus, he he represents both parties. He represents true God and true man. And he's able to, to relate to us in this way. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be tempted. And at times we might think that because Jesus is perfect and he's sinless, that he can't really know what it's like to, to struggle against temptation. And it's true that Jesus, he, he did have, a, or he has a perfect sinless nature, and, and he didn't face the same temptations from, from inside that you and I might face. But the temptations that Jesus did face, they were far more intense than our daily temptations. And Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, and yet he withstood those temptations. He didn't give in, and he was tested beyond any one of our breaking points. And so we have a mediator who who knows just how deep and intense temptation can become. And on the other hand, as the Son of God, he's fully able to relate to his Father. He has the same hatred of sin that his father has. And he has the same love for for righteousness that God desires. He's able to perfectly see and understand both the divine and the human perspective. And normally in mediation, each side will argue their, their case and the mediator helps them see each other's perspective But in this case, by by his birth and his incarnation in Jesus Christ, we have a mediator who is not standing in, in the middle, but he's on both sides. He bridges the gap. He's on our side. He's on God's side too. And through the power of his divine nature, 
He was able in his human nature to live a perfect life, a life of of perfect innocence and holiness, a life of, of innocence and holiness that is now counted to us as through his death on the cross, our sins are paid for. Our sins are covered in the sight of God by his blood. And God no longer looks at us as those conceived and, and born in sin, but as those who have been covered by Christ and dressed in his robes of righteousness. And so the two sides, they were brought together at the cross, where Jesus was, was made sin for us. He was made sin for us, although no sin was ever his own. It's where our guilt and sin was counted to him and where his righteousness was counted to us. And this is who we celebrate. This is who we long for in the time of Advent. A man who who lived roughly 33, maybe 35 years on earth, who spent roughly three years in public ministry, teaching and preaching and, and healing. And all along he had one objective, one central objective, to, to become sin and thereby become the mediator of a new covenant. And in this new covenant, we now have his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is what he has done for you. This is what he has done for me. This is the great benefit that that Christmas and Advent is all about. Our greatest need has truly been fulfilled in Christ. Amen.